Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Bible Baptist Church. Amen. Thank you, John. That verse from Paul resonates in my mind as I hear that, that I may know him the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, that I may know him. That should be our cry, my highest gain. We talked about in youth life this morning, just the life of Stephen. We're slowly going through the book of Acts and how Stephen, when you get to the end of chapter 6 going into chapter 7, uh, he's accused of some pretty serious stuff, and it's not true, obviously. And uh, there's a point in there that talks about Stephen's character, and you go through the entire chapter and a half and realize that Stephen has no like major talents or abilities that are mentioned. He just knows God. <laughs> he has faith in God. He's tapped into the power of God. And he's living for God. And he knows the scriptures. And so it's, it's a reminder to us this morning that that ought to be our highest goal. It's to not be super talented, not super able, but to know God. That's the highest goal that we could ever attain. This morning, we're going to be in Psalm 101. Psalm 101 is where we're going to be at. And before we dive into the verses, let's go ahead and seek the Lord's face this morning as we look at His Word. Father, thank You uh, for this opportunity. Lord, I pray that You would um, help set me aside and help us as we look at these verses. This is some heavy stuff, Lord, and I just pray that You would help us to um, be true to evaluating our life and that we would see which area of our life needs to be recommitted to you. It's in Christ and we pray, amen. I've been slowly, at the beginning of the summer, I decided, or a little bit before summer, I decided that my next study um, in my devotions was going to be through the book of Psalms. Now, that's a, that's a massive task when you look at how many chapters are in Psalms. But I went about it a little bit differently, and I, I was just sitting there. I'd been uh, talking with some teens, counseling some other individuals, and I was just, I was just really burdened by the, mo- the emotions that go through life. You, know, you could be really excited one day, you could be discouraged the next day, and so I knew that David was very open with his emotions through Psalms, and so I just thought one day, I said, I wonder if anybody has ever categorized the Psalms according to emotion. And so I decided that I would look that. I found a chart that someone had made, and so I've slowly been going through the Psalms, jumping around, not Psalm 1, all the way through the end, but jumping around the Psalms based off of the emotions that we go through in life. And this is one of the emotions that we go through, is, is the emotions of our, of our commitments. And so Psalm 101 starts off and says this, I will sing of the mercy and judgment. I will sing of mercy and judgment. Unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. O when wilt thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within mine house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. 
I will early destroy the wicked of the land that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. This past summer, I had the privilege of uh, officiating or being a part of two different weddings. One was my brother-in-law's, Rachel's brother that was in Tennessee. That was at the beginning of, of June. And then the next one was my sister's wedding uh, the week after here uh, in Hampton. And both of those, uh, as you are a part of weddings, maybe you're the one getting married or the one officiating weddings or the one just watching the weddings, you know there comes a, a, a point in time when the officiant stands there and has the two, the bride and the groom, face each other and then begins to read through what we, we would call the covenants that these two are joining into, the commitments, or we would say the what? I do's or I wills. Uh, and these are, these are pretty heavy commitments, right? In fact, you'll hear a statement that is very similar to or goes along like this. Will you have this man or woman to be your wife or husband to live together in the covenant of marriage? Do you promise to love him, her, comfort him, her, honor and keep him or her in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, be faithful to them as long as you both shall live. And in the end, the bride and the groom, they both say, I do, I will. They put a ring on their fingers, they seal it. Um, Then at the end with a kiss and they move on and they are married. Now, for those of you married, do you remember those vows? (laughs) I don't remember specifically the vows of of my marriage. I mean, they're, they're very similar to this. I just remember being super nervous. That's all I remember. So I don't remember like uh, everything that the pastor was saying. I just remember this is a, this is a big deal, okay? I just got to make sure that I say I do at the right spot, and I got to make sure it, it's I do. And so I remember being super nervous. Now, going and watching other weddings or officiating other weddings, you know, you're a little more relaxed and that you're not the one having to make these commitments. But here's the question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning, whether or not we're married or not, Here's the question. Have you been 100% faithful to those commitments in your marriage? Now, that's an interesting question because we would all like to say, yeah, 100%. Been, been faithful to those commitments. Okay, well, have you always loved? Have you always comforted? Have you always been faithful? I, I think if we're honest, we realize that we break commitments left and right, even within our own marriage. When you get to Psalm 101, David is now king of Israel, and you will find that David uses this phrase, I will or will I, nine different times, which is interesting because there's only eight verses. And so jam-packed within those eight verses are these commitment words. I will, will I. This repetitive phrase only leads us to believe that David was making a strong commitment within this psalm. If you were to go back, and I encourage you to maybe go back to Psalm 78, this is actually a psalm that Asaph writes. Uh, And Asaph, towards the end of the psalm, begins to give us a picture of the state of the nation of Israel, excuse me, at the end of Saul's reign and the beginning of David's reign. And you'll see kind of the spiritual temperature where the nation is. Verse 56 says, Yet they tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not His testimonies, but turned back and dwelt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like, the, uh, like a deceitful bow. For they provoked Him to anger with their high places, their idolatry, and moved Him to jealousy with their graven images." 
By the end of the psalm, you'll see that Asaph mentions a new king that's in town. He mentions David. And as you get to the end, verse 70, he says, He, God, chose David, also his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. So you see the nation of Israel and their state is anything but what they committed that they would do. They committed to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, strength. And yet when we look in Psalm chapter 78, we see that Asaph is saying, this nation is in shambles. There's high places that are being set up, which were places dedicated to the idolatrous worship. There were graven images all over the place. They had not only just taken part of idolatry, but they had also just shamed God's name, Jehovah, and really tested and provoked him to anger. Was that wrong of God? No, God is a jealous God. And even in the Ten Commandments, we realize that you shall serve God and him alone shall you serve. There shall be no other gods before me, he says. And so now David takes over as a king in Israel. And it would be that we would think that he steps in and he says, okay, it's time to clean house. It's time to deal with all of you reprobates. It's time to deal with all of you that have run away from God. It's time to, to bring justice. But his cry is a little bit different. And I know this may not be exactly family matters, uh, but it does deal with our home. And our home may be out of control. And it may be something that we go to our home and we say, okay, it's time to get our household back into where it's supposed to be. It could be that at your workplace, it's just out of control. It could be that you're just looking at the world around you and you're saying, the world is just out of control. And our, and our eyes and our fingers are always pointed to our homes, to our workplaces, to our schools, to the world around us. When David makes these uh, pronoun statements of, I will. And we realize that as David moves into his throne before a nation that is just in shambles, spiritually speaking, in order to lead the nation appropriately for God's sake, he had to be real with himself. He had to understand that, listen, Israel has committed to God and decommitted to God. They have committed to God and they have decommitted to God. And it's been this constant cycle through history. And he doesn't just start bashing Israel. He says, look at me. I need to go back to recommit my life to Jehovah. And so he recommits a couple of things in his life, the first of which is his heart. He dedicates his heart. If you were to go to Joshua chapter 24 and verses 15 through 17, uh, this is Joshua speaking, and he basically states to Israel, choose you this day whom you will serve. Are you going to serve God, or are you going to serve yourself? We need an answer, and there's not going to be any in between. You choose I remember specifically my youth pastor when I was a, a sophomore in high school. I remember him preaching a message out of that passage. I actually have it dated in my Bible. I just it came across it as I was studying for this message. And I have it dated August, and it was, it was, it was in 2007, 
in the month of August, so all the way back in 2007. And I remember him bringing in masking tape into our youth room, and he put it on the floor, and he, and he preached this message about recommitting our life to the Lord. And he said, teens, I want you this morning, without any wiggle room, without you just sitting there, I want you to choose. Are you going to serve God, or are you going to serve yourself? And he said, as for me, my house, and he stepped over the line, and he said, we're going to serve God. And so if you want to serve God with me, why don't you come on up and make this commitment to serving God? And so all of us, obviously, you don't want to be the one sitting there in youth group. You know, all of us got up and we went across the line and we're like, yeah, we're going to serve God. That was in 2007. It is now the year 2023. Have I committed and stayed true and faithful to the commitment of serving God every day of my life since then? Absolutely not. So as I was reading through Psalm 101, I realized that this is not just for David. This is not just for the nation of Israel. This is for us. Because all we're doing is fast-forwarding years and realizing that we're made of the same stuff. We serve the same God. We, if we know Jesus Christ, our personal Lord and Savior, have made the same commitments. And because we're frail and because we're human, we probably have broken those commitments. So as we go to this passage, I want us to be honest, and really, you can divide these points up into heart, soul, and mind. That's what God calls us to give him, right? To love him with our heart, with our soul, and with our mind. The first thing that David says is, I will commit my heart. If you look at verses 1 and 2, he says, I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Some commentators believe that this psalm was written uh, early on in David's uh, reign in Israel, and some will mention this next question, O when wilt thou come unto me, that he was talking about the Ark of the Covenant, because the Ark of the Covenant had been in multiple different hands up until this point. And David's heart, as you know, has always was always to have a place for God's presence. He wanted to build the temple, but God said, you're, you're a man of war, You're a man of blood, and so I'm going to leave that to somebody else, and we know that Solomon would go on and build the temple. So it's very possible that this question leads us to believe this is at the beginning of David's reign, but the point is he's making this commitment to the Lord, whether at the beginning, whether in the middle, whether at the end. He comes back to a realization that if I'm going to lead my house, then I need to recommit my life to what truly matters. So he would commit his heart. What about his heart? He would commit his song. The song of his heart would be what? Mercy and judgment. That's an interesting combination, isn't it? (laughs) Mercy and judgment. They're, They're pretty much stark contrast to each other. Judgment is getting exactly what you deserve. Mercy is to withhold what you deserve. So David is saying, may my song be mercy and judgment. Remember, he is now king of Israel. And so he's saying, Lord, as I lead this people, may my song be Mercy and judgment. Now let's tackle the judgment part of it first. Obviously, as a king, David needed to rule with justice. And like any king, there would be wrongs that needed to be made right. There would be those that would go against the law of the kingdom. And to be a leader in his kingdom, David needed to dedicate his heart to seeking justice. But David also wanted to have a balance. David did not want to be known only for ruling with an iron fist, but also to be a king that was just and merciful at the same time. 
After all, the God that he served, the God that we serve, also has the characteristics of being a just and a merciful God. God has that character, so it's entirely possible that we could lead the same way. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4 says, He, God, is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. We see from the very get-go, from the law, from Deuteronomy, that God is holy. He's without sin. He must punish sin. He cannot even look upon it. He's just. And it's okay for him to do that because he is perfect, because he is holy. But you also find verses like Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. This is how God reigns his kingdom. He reigns with mercy and he reigns with judgment. We love the judgment part of it, don't we? You did wrong, so there's your punishment. Even when we're raising our children in our household, it's easy for us to be so heavy on the judgment side and miss out on the mercy side of things. What an awesome opportunity David had to show a kingdom who God was. Because of the judgment part of it, yes, because God is holy, he is just, but also because of the mercy part of it and allowing them to see that God is long-suffering. Obviously, it's been years upon years upon years of this idolatrous worship, and yet God is still saying, come to me. If God was only a God of judgment, Israel would have been wiped out extremely soon after their existence. But God was merciful. And David is saying, Lord, as I'm leading this this nation, may I be a person, a king, that agrees with what is right and wrong? May, May I agree with the Holy One, but may I also rule with mercy so that others see you? I remember a couple of years ago, we had a foreign exchange student living in our house. It was an interesting time. It was the year of COVID. And so we basically homeschooled her half the year. And it was, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was borderline trial for us, but we, we made through it. And uh, it was interesting trying to raise somebody else's teenager. I think it's going to be easy raising our own teenager rather than trying to lead a uh, parent somebody else's. There was a moment in her uh, short schooling here, that first semester, that um, she had cheated on a test. I believe it might have actually been in um, Sarah Keel's class. I can't remember. You might remember this story. And so Dr. C had emailed me and said, this is what happened. Um, if you guys could, you know, broach this subject and allow her to know that with this, this wrongdoing comes a consequence. And so Rachel and I had thought about it for a, for a while, for, you know, for that afternoon. And, and we had really been just burdened with the fact that she didn't know Christ. And, and we knew that cheating brings a consequence. But we just knew this was an opportunity for us to really show her who God is. And so instead of being frustrated with her when she got home from school and just saying, you know better than this, I mean, why, why in the world would you do this? We decided that we were going to email Dr. C, and I believe it was Sarah Keel, and just say, hey, can we have some liberty in, in allowing her to not face the consequences as we show her what mercy is? And both of them, right off the bat, were like, yes, absolutely. I mean, they don't take that every single time. But they understood our heart. And so when she got home, we sat at the table and we said, listen, it's been said that you were cheating. Is that correct? Yes. She just started crying. 
I mean, she, she knew. I mean, anybody knows that once you do something wrong, there's consequences. And so we were talking to her about the cheating, how it was wrong, how it goes against the, the rules of school. Then we started talking about God's law and breaking God's law and how that brings consequences as well. And at the end of our conversation, we just, we just said, hey, we, we want to let you know that we are going to show and the school is going to show mercy and there will be no consequences. And she just was stunned, was looking at us. And we took that opportunity to say, you know what, just, just right now, as you are not, you're not getting the justice that you deserve, the consequence that you deserve, you're being shown mercy. There's a God in heaven that is constantly showing mercy every single day. She didn't accept Jesus Christ as her personal Lord and Savior, but she has messaged us since then and has said, I, I just really appreciate our talks. I appreciate uh, your religion. She has not accepted it yet, but she just appreciated knowing who God was. She knew God to be this harsh God, but showing her the other side of who God is, yes, he's harsh on sin. He says it like it is, but he's also merciful. Are we taking time in our day and in our household to not just discipline our children and say, you know you shouldn't be doing that, here's your consequence and leave, or are we showing them God's mercy? I'm not saying that our kids go stark free every, every single time that they do something wrong. There ought to be consequences and showing them that there is consequences to breaking law. But are we showing them the mercy of God? Outside of our home, are we showing the world in which we live God's mercy along with our judgment? It's so easy for us to stand up and say, the world, you're wicked. You need to stop doing what you're doing. This is against God's word. This is against God's law. And you should repent. And do all of that without the mercy aspect of it. Because if we're just judging, then we're no different than the world. The world judges pretty well. (laughs) But if we are just and hold to what is right and what is wrong, but do so with a merciful heart, we begin to show them a picture of who God really is. And David says, Lord, this, this nation is messed up. This nation needs you. And if I am going to lead them in the right way, then may my song be not only judgment, but may it also be mercy. Then he also goes into the next verse, and he says, Lord, may I behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Lord, may my, may my song be one of mercy and judgment, and, and may I have a meekness of heart. Not only did David want a balance of mercy and judgment, but he also wanted a perfect heart. Now, that's, that's a big-time standard. Perfectness. Remember in Ephesians when Paul says that the, the goal of the church is to equip the saints for the, uh, or perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. It's not that we're all perfect without sin. It means that we ought to be maturing in God, in Christ. And that every single day we are growing in Him. That's what David is saying. Lord, may I daily be maturing in Your Word. May, I, may my heart be perfect before You. This meekness is power that's under control. Because all of us can have power. All of us can control. But if we have our power that is yielded under the control of God, then He can then lead us. Psalm 25, David would say this, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore... Will I teach sinners in the way? The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his ways. Lord, as I am singing the song of mercy and judgment, may you teach me your ways, is what David is saying. There are many things that are powerful, but under control are very useful. 
You could look at a, a broken colt, right? If you try to ride a horse that is wild, you won't ride it very long. They, they have competitions of bull riding. They're out of control. It's power out of control. But imagine being able to put a saddle on the back of a horse that is broken and being able to go wherever you want to go. That is power under control. The wind is a great thing. We love it, especially here in the south when it is extremely hot and a nice breeze comes out of the, out of the woods. We're like, that is so great. But the wind is very powerful, isn't it? They could just wipe out an entire section of a country. Tornadoes are real. They wipe out your house. That's still wind. But power under control is an important thing. Medicine is another thing. It's very powerful. It can help you with your aches and your illnesses. But out of control, it does damage. And David is saying here, Lord, may my heart be one that is singing mercy and judgment, but may it also be power that is under control. Lord, I know that I've been given much power and being the king over Israel, but may my heart walk in the perfect way that you would have me to walk. That's power that is under God's control. Parents, students, teenagers, bosses, authority, how are we doing with yielding our authority? Are we um, power that's just just down on people? Are we power under control? It's easy for us to get out of control even in our own homes. But when God has control of our life, that's power that is under control that, that can be used in a, in a powerful way that leads other people to God. And David is basically saying, I will walk within my house in a perfect way. If I'm going to lead a nation that is broken down and in shambles and not following the Lord, I need to be the one to set the example and walk in a perfect way within my own, my own house. David's expectation was that the people do the same thing. If you look at verse 6 in the last part of it, he says, he that walketh in the perfect way, he shall serve me. David wasn't trying to say, okay, I need perfect people in this kingdom and that's all that I'm looking for. No, he said, if I'm going to expect that people be maturing and growing in the Lord, then I need to do the same thing as well. And parents, if we're going to expect that our children are going to walk in the ways of the Lord and are going to grow in the Lord through His Word, we have to expect the same of us today. Grandparents, we can't expect that our grandchildren walk in the ways of the Lord if our lives aren't displaying that as well. David is being extremely honest here. God, I'm king. I can do whatever I want. But I realize that that's not what this nation needs. I'm a parent, I can do whatever I want, but I realize that that's not what this household needs. This household needs me to walk in a perfect way. This school needs me to walk in a perfect way. My job, my workplace needs me to walk in a perfect way. And so may I sing the song of mercy and judgment, and may I walk with a perfect heart. He then moves into verse 3, says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. This moves then from the dedication of his heart then now to a discerning of his soul because even deeper than the heart are these spiritual matters. These things that trip us up. These things that grab our attention and pull us in. These snares that keep us down. The sin that God set us in victory over. We still waller in. And David is saying, if if I'm going to be king, if I'm going to lead this nation that is far from you, God, I need to make sure that I am discerning in my eyes. It's the first thing that he says. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that do that turn aside. Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 to 23 says, The light of the body is the eye. It is therefore thine eye 
If thy, therefore thine eye be single, and the whole body shall be full of light, but if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? There are many things in this world that are alluring to the eyes. There's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. There are so many things that are shiny, that are alluring to us, that we cleave to, that we cling to. And David says, I've got to be careful with my eyes. As king, I've got to be careful with my eyes. I don't know if this was before or after his falling with Bathsheba. This was his commitment, though. And I believe that he continued to bring himself back to the commitments that he once set because he's known as a man after God's own heart. He's known as, by Asaph, a man that led with the integrity of his heart. And in, the, in his eyes, he said, David said, I know my tendencies, I know my weaknesses, and I must set no wicked thing before my eyes. Those things will not cleave to me. Outside of our house, we've got this one bush that, any of you have those bushes where you trim them and then like the next week they're, they need trimmed again? It's so annoying. I just want to chop them off and be done with them. But as you trim bushes, I've got one that's out in front of my house that the leaves are like Velcro. Any of you have any bushes that are like that? You trim them and then they're all over you. I don't know what happens. You just trim them and all those leaves are all over you. They cling to you. It, it's so annoying. You got to pick them off one by one. They're all over my gloves. They're all over my shirt, all over my shorts. And you got to pick them all off. you got to throw them away. And then when you try to throw them away, they're on your glove. And you got to pull them off. And they're on the other glove. And they're just clinging everywhere. And David makes this picture. He says, I will not set my eyes to see any wicked thing. It will not cleave to me. David says, I'm going to be walking through the filth of this nation. I'm going to be walking through the filth of this world. And my prayer is that the filth of this world does not stick to me. I pray that I walk right through it and I keep my eyes on God and I keep my eyes from seeing anything that is wicked. Can we be honest this morning? Because we're all human, we're all sinners, and because under the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be honest and we can say that all of us in this room have a problem with our eyes. We all have a problem with our eyes. What we look at may all look different, but we all have a problem with looking towards things that we can't have, shouldn't have, that are somebody else's, we're constantly letting our eyes shift, linger, and allow those things to cleave to us. And David says, I, I can't do that. I hate it. Do you hate it? We see how it ruins other people's lives. We decide to go down the same path, expecting we decide we're going to go ahead and do that, and maybe it'll be different, but it's not. The world is alluring and Satan knows what to bring past your eye gate that's going to catch you. He knows exactly what you're scrolling through and he knows when to throw a certain thing into your news feed that you have a choice to scroll right past, turn off your phone, or stay there and linger. We constantly have opportunity to let our eyes cleave to what is unholy. David says, let my eyes cleave to you. Let me look to things that are holy. So what are we looking at, church? Here's the question. What are we looking at? What are we watching as parents? Teenagers, what are you scrolling over and lingering on? Here is the reality. Even as parents, we cannot expect our children to abhor that which is evil and cling to that which is good if we can't live by the same standard. 
And we wonder why our children struggle, because we struggle. What an awesome conversation it is to have a child come to you and say, Mom, Dad, I'm struggling. And for you to know the same temptation and to see the victory through Christ and to be able to hold your child's hand and bring them through that victory instead of just sitting there thinking, I struggle with the same thing and I don't know how to get out of it. And to try to kind of cover over the, oh, well, just, just, just go confess to God and, and don't do it again. Don't you ever do it again or there'll, there'll be consequences hiding behind the judgment of it and not seeing that God knows our frailty. He was tempted like we are in all points, yet without sin. He knows the struggle that we go through. And as parents, we have the awesome opportunity to set the example, but it starts with an I will in my life in order to help our children live the same way. David says, if I'm going to expect my nation to look after things that are holy and just, then I need to set the same standard. And then he moves into his mouth, and this is, this is deep as well. He goes into verse 4, A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. Frowardness is basically just wickedness. Proverbs 8 and verse 15 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogancy, and the evil way. And the froward mouth do I hate. Proverbs 2.12, to deliver thee from the way of the evil man, from the man that speaketh froward things. Where do froward words come from? Matthew 12 tells us, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good measure of his heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil or froward man out out of the evil froward treasure bringeth forth evil or froward things. And David says, if I'm going to lead my household, my nation, then I need to make sure that this frowardness that's bound up within my heart, that comes out of my mouth, that it be gone, depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. He goes even farther to say the company in which I keep needs to line up with where I need to live based off of God's word. And then he says slander. Now, this is a hard one here. First part of verse 5 Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. When Connor was, uh, I, we, were, we were renting. I think we were right next, we were renting next to the Needlers. We were next to our neighbors at one point. And um, Connor had walked outside and he was in one of those onesie pajamas. You know what I'm talking about? The ones with the feet. We had to eventually cut the feet off because he was growing so fast. Uh, but he had the feet on and he was walking outside and I was outside. It was after a rain. I actually have the picture on my phone and we're just standing on the sidewalk and we're just looking out. I don't even know what we were looking out at, but I'm standing, he's standing right next to me, and I'm just kind of thinking, looking, something, I don't know, talking, and Connor decides to step off the sidewalk and go right into the yard. Well, he goes right through a puddle, which mucks up his pajamas. It's all dirty. It's all filthy, and so we needed to take him back inside, and we needed to get him a new set of pajamas or, you know, clothe him for the rest of the day, as good parents should do. (laughs) But that picture of the mud, walking through the mud, is exactly what David is talking about here when he says that uh, whoso privately slandereth his neighbor. What is that? That is taking somebody else's name and just pulling it right through that same puddle and mucking it up and muddying it up and making it tarnished. And God's Word talks a lot about slander. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 19 says that he that goeth about as a tarot bearer revealeth secrets 
The idea about tailbearing, we get this word gossip from it, but tailbearing actually tells it as it is. You're taking a tale about somebody else and you're bearing it to somebody else. And because of the nature of this term, they aren't good tales. You're not taking something wonderful that happened to somebody else and running it to somebody else and being excited for them and talking about the good things that happened to them. No, you're taking the juicy little secrets. That's what it says, reveal us secrets. You're taking those tales that are true and bringing them to somebody else and spilling them out. Gossip doesn't have to be an untrue tale. It can be 100% completely true. But God's Word says don't do it. Don't take a tale about somebody else and run to somebody else and, and tell them about it. What does the Bible also say? He that seeketh love seeketh to cover a multitude of sins. We don't just take what somebody else is struggling with and run to other people and just start talking about it. I don't know who's writing this. It's David in Psalm 101. And you realize that David had a king right before him that was just constantly in hot pursuit of killing him. Remember the one time David stands up and he's holding up a part of Saul's cloak and he says, Saul, I could have killed you in the middle of the night, but I didn't. You get to the end of Saul's life and I just think that this is, this is kind of puts us back in our seat and is a reprimand to all of us about the authority in our life where David stands up and he begins to give a eulogy about Saul and about Jonathan. And he says this, Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. This is interesting. Is, is this the same Saul that was chasing David? that was basically wanting to kill him, is that the same guy? Because you're reading this and you're like, dude, David, this, this was your chance to just set the record straight. Saul was a terrible king and he tried to kill me on multiple occasions and he fell off the pattern of spirituality and he lived carnally and proudful the rest of his life. But yet you get to these, these verses and he's talking up Saul. Pleasant lives, lovely lives, what is David saying? This is my authority. I'm not going to slander their name. And David says, as I reign over Israel, may it not be named among any of my neighbors that we are slandering anybody. Parents in our household, are we slandering our bosses? Are we slandering our pastors? Are we slandering our president? Are we taking their names and dragging them through the mud? for our children to see a spectacle of what slander is and for them to go on in school and do the same thing about their teachers and to do the same thing about their peers. And we wonder why our children say the things that they say because they hear mom and dad say the same thing around the table just with different people. It's easy for us to take somebody's name and just drag it through the mud. And David says, this has been going on long enough. I can't take it anymore. None of my neighbors... <laughs> are going to be slandering anybody because I'm not going to slander. He makes this commitment, and then he deals with his own pride. How does the Lord view pride? Well, we know that one. He hates it. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 5, everyone that is proud of heart is an abomination to the Lord. Wow. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. 
Proverbs 26, 12. Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. And if you've read through Proverbs, what's the hope of a fool? (laughs) There is none. If you're proud, there's no hope for you. James 4, verse 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resists or puts a stiff arm into a proudful person, but he gives grace to the humble. The last part of verse 5, he says, Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. Luke chapter 18 would give us a picture of two different individuals. In verse 9 it says, And he spake this parable unto a certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. <clears throat> I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not so much as lift his eyes unto heaven, but smote his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted." So often we have the same heart as the Pharisee. God, I tithe. God, I serve you. God, I go to your house. I go to church three times a week. I am so glad that I am not like so-and-so. And we act and walk through the doors of church, and it's a comparison show instead of confession of our own heart. And we sit here in the pew and we think to ourselves, wow, I can't believe they're going through that. I am so glad that's not me. And this publican doesn't even look up. I mean, the publican could have said, I'm glad that I'm not like the Pharisee. He's proud. He just didn't even lift up his head. And he said, God, I need you. And David is saying here, if I'm going to lead this nation, I need to have a humble heart. I don't need to compare with anybody. My life is before God, and it's my life and my life only. I'm not giving an account for the people that are around me. I'm giving an account for my life. And I want to lead them closer to God. And as parents, you're accountable for your life and where you lead your children because of your example. And a proud heart is stiffened by the Lord, but He gives grace to the humble. For David, it was time to clean house. So then he goes into verses 6-8, through which have to deal with all his relationships. It basically has to deal with his decision. God, I've made this dedication I am really looking at my soul and being, being uh, wise about where I look, what I say, how my heart is before you, and so now I'm going to decide to serve you. It wasn't until David decided to recommit his life before God that he would have a clean house. You remember the publican? He went to his house justified. I wonder how many of us are going to go back to our houses after church today with the blessing of the Lord because of how we're living our life before him. Or how many of us are going to go back to our house that is just in shambles because we as leaders are not the ones to take the step and say, I'll commit. I'll do this. I realize that I've broken my commitments. I realize that I haven't been 100% where I ought to be, so I'm going to recommit my life to the Lord. You ever heard of a couple that recommits their vows, renews their vows? They stand before each other and they renew their vow? Are they getting married for a second time? No. They're just reminding themselves, listen, these are the commitments that we made. We need to get back to or continue to commit these things to each other. In church, we've got to do the same thing. 
We stray away from our commitments, we got to get back on track. We stray away from our commitments, we got to get back on track. Warren Wiersbe would say in this psalm, he deals with a dedicated heart, a discerning mind, and a decisive action. He takes action as a king. Are we dedicated to living wisely and perfect? Are we discerning of what is going through our eyes and out of our mouth? Are we deciding to take action and to live this way so that other people can follow suit? It's extremely possible because we have seen this cycle repeated many, many times in Scripture that we're off track with our I wills before our God. What should we do now? Well, rededicate your heart to the Lord. Live the way He wants you to live. Ponder your path. What are you allowing to go through your eyes? Come out of your mouth. Decide that this is the way that you will live so that you can expect the same out of your own house, out of your school, out of your workplace. The change of culture in David's kingdom was not going to happen with David standing up and saying, come on, people, you know that you can be better than this. It was going to happen with David on his knees saying, God, help me. If I can't live this way, then the kingdom's not going to live this way either. The change in our culture, the change in our school, the change in our own household does not come when we point fingers at others and demand change. It begins when we point the finger at ourselves and allow change. Did David completely 100% stay true to his commitments? No. He would fall within his own family. He would sin with Bathsheba. He would fail to discipline his own children. He would have problems within his own ranks with Joab and Abishai. He would have his trusted counselor betray him. But what would David do? He would go on to reign for 40 years, and in those 40 years, he would see expanded borders to his kingdom. He would see the enemies of God defeated. He would see enough wealth to build the temple of God under his son's reign. He would continue a line that would bring forth the ultimate king, Jesus Christ, into this world. David had weaknesses, no doubt. David fell, absolutely. But David continued to go back to his commitments. I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. I believe that we need to recommit our hearts to the Lord. And as we close this morning, we're going to sing a song entitled, I am weak, but you are strong. Isn't that the truth? We realize as we come to this passage in Psalm 101 that David is literally saying, God, I'm weak, but you're strong. Lord, I come with nothing to offer. In my hands... No gift I bring. All I have is my pride, my selfishness, but all I want is You as my King. Give me strength, dear Lord, to obey Your Word as I take the shield of faith. I receive Your gift of salvation. I rejoice in the gift of Your grace. In my weakness now I come, Lord. Be my strength and be my song. In my need I seek Your help, Lord. I am weak but you are strong. Can we stand and sing this together? And as we do, just simply talk to the Lord. (laughs) Recommit your life to Him. It's nothing special. It's just saying, Lord, I've kind of strayed away a little bit. I need to get back on track. May my song be mercy and judgment. May my heart be one to say, I I don't want to look at this. I don't want to say this. I don't want a proud heart. I want to decide to live for you so that my workplace, so that my school, so that my home can see the leader that you have designed me to be to lead other people to God through His grace. Let's sing this song together.
Lord, I come with nothing to offer you. In my hands no gift I bring. All I have, my pride and my selfishness, all I want is you as my King. In my weakness now I come, Lord, be my strength and be my song. In my need I seek your help, Lord, I am weak, but you are strong. Give me strength, dear Lord, to obey your word as I take the shield of faith. I receive your gift of salvation. I rejoice in the gift of your grace. In my weakness now I come, Lord, be my strength and be my song. In my need I seek your help, Lord, I am weak but you are strong. Great singing tonight. We have home groups. You'll kind of discuss some of the questions from today's message. And at the end, there'll be a question. Will you commit your life, recommit your life to the Lord? There's a check box, yes, check box, no. And really, we'll be uh, encouraged to say, Lord, I need to get back on track. I need to leave my house, leave my workplace, leave my school for you. And I would encourage you just to take some time this evening with other brothers and sisters in Christ to really talk through that because we're all made of the same stuff. We all serve the same God and we all have the same opponent and Satan. We all need God's grace. In my weakness. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.